Well, hey everybody, it's me, your friend, Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. Ah! It's been a little while. Uh, partly I think that's because I've been working very hard on my other podcast with my friend Ashley, and it's called The Mo Scale. And I'm going to put a little clip from that, actually quite a long clip from that, at the end of this episode. So you can have a little listen, you can maybe check it out, see if you might be interested in that. Anyway, I'm going to be doing an episode today all about House of the Dragon versus Rings of Power, kind of. I'm just going to be talking about both of them, basically. And um, I get kind of opinionated in this one, so I hope that doesn't come back to bite me on the arse. And uh, now I'm going to transition into the scripted parts of this podcast. And I'm, I'm telling you that in advance, because you can definitely tell the difference between me talking like this and when I'm reading from a script, so I just thought, you know, let's hang a lampshade on it. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy this episode, whether you agree with me or not, and whether you agree with me or not, you can email me at panickyintheuk at gmail.com with any thoughts you might have, as long as you're, you know, nice about it. Uh, You know, reasonable people can differ, but uh, please do be reasonable, because I'm very delicate, you know? I'm I'm a delicate hothouse flower, and you don't want to upset me, because it's just, it's a mess. (sighs) This is just a note that I'll be discussing scenes of graphic violence, including sexual violence in the Game of Thrones franchise in this episode. There will also be spoilers for Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and Rings of Power, including some discussion of fan speculation about future story developments. So, framing this as a competition isn't necessarily an approach I would ordinarily have chosen, but it definitely seems as if the two shows are playing up a rivalry, with the first episode of House of the Dragon being dropped for free, just as Rings of Power was premiering. The comparisons are obvious, they're both high-budget, high-fantasy prequels to beloved and very successful IP, they both have female protagonists, and of course they both have a lot of long blonde hair. I think that the fan and media response is also playing into the competition, though maybe it'll settle down once both shows have had more of a chance to establish themselves. Both are obviously trying to capitalise on the gigantic cultural phenomenon that was Game of Thrones. While of course the Lord of the Rings films were a sensation, I doubt Rings of Power would have been made, let alone been the most expensive TV show ever, if Thrones hadn't come first, especially after the muted reception given to the Hobbit films. Everybody wants their own Game of Thrones, including Netflix with The Witcher. And while all of these shows are doing pretty well, though House of the Dragon's ratings are eclipsing those of Rings of Power at the moment, I think that they missed the point that Game of Thrones was so popular because it filled a niche. Now the market's flooded with a glut of high fantasy, and that's going to create diminishing returns. I think networks and streamers would be much better off identifying a new gap in the market and trying to address that rather than trying to recreate something we've already seen. I'm looking forward to the Horizon Zero Dawn show, for example. Horizon certainly has elements in common with these shows, but with a unique setting and leaning more sci-fi, getting out of the quasi-medieval Europe rut that mainstream fantasy is stuck in. My feelings about Game of Thrones are definitely more of a bell curve than my feelings about Lord of the Rings. At its best, I was passionate about it, and at its worst, I passionately hated it. I'm definitely not an apologist for the final two or even three seasons. As far as Lord of the Rings goes, I was about the right age for the film trilogy when it first came out, and I did enjoy it, though I never fawned over the elves like my straight female friends all seem to. 
When the Hobbit films came out, I went to see them and I actually really enjoyed them. I acknowledge the structural issues and it's a shame they weren't able to use more practical effects, but I certainly don't share the hatred for them that seems to be the majority opinion. So originally I was prepared to watch Rings of Power but give House of the Dragon a miss. I didn't have a lot of goodwill to spare for another Thrones project. But when I started to see some of the discussion online, I decided I wanted to check out the first episode just to get some idea of what everyone was talking about. What I'm primarily referring to here is the talk about the quote-unquote violence against women in the first episode. I assumed that this was going to be a scene of sexual violence, given Game of Thrones' pretty terrible track record in that area. To recap, there are at least two scenes of sexual violence in Game of Thrones which have extremely questionable framing. One is a scene of Sansa being raped, which is framed through Theon's subjectivity, as if he's the real victim of the scene for being made to watch. It's actually not a graphic scene at all, and I think that perhaps by panning away from the actual act of violence, the showrunners meant to be sensitive, but just didn't quite think through the implications. Another scene, and to my mind the worst one, was one where Jamie rapes Cersei after the death of their son. In a subsequent interview, the showrunners said they thought it was clear that it became consensual by the end, which first of all not really how consent works, but also definitely not how the scene came across. I think what really bothered people about this scene was how it seemed to undermine Jamie's character growth. In both cases, I feel like it wasn't so much the depiction of sexual violence per se as the approach that was a problem. So when I watched the pilot episode of House of the Dragon after seeing these critiques of it, I was bracing myself for a rape scene that never came. The scene that people were actually referring to was a caesarean. It's it's a procedure that within the setting, as it was for much of real life history, is lethal to the person giving birth. King Viserys, played by Paddy Considine, chooses to sacrifice his wife, played by a fantastic Sean Brooke, in the hopes of saving his unborn son. When I realised that this was what people had been talking about, I couldn't believe it. Here's the thing. The show makes crystal clear right from the very first scene that this is going to be a story about the role of women in a patriarchal society, far more than Game of Thrones ever was. This opening scene shows us Eve Best's Rhaenys being passed over for succession. It probably shouldn't have been a surprise to me that some people lacked the media literacy to put this together, but I keep getting my hopes up about the human race. Always a mistake. You sometimes see people saying things like, you can do anything you want in fantasy, why replicate sexism or racism or whatever other form of bigotry they're bothered by in a work of fiction. Of course, if you prefer utopian escapist fantasy, there's nothing wrong with that preference, but accusing anything that engages with bigotry of itself being bigoted is nonsense. Fantasy doesn't have an obligation to be utopian, and the Game of Thrones franchise has never billed itself as utopian. I also want to point out that, as is often the case, the violence perpetrated against a woman here is very much balanced with violence perpetrated against numerous men, including a graphic castration scene. Would it really be more feminist to demand that the ladies be immune from the danger that is ever present in the show's setting? I've also seen someone claiming that it's interesting that people seem to prefer the show that replicates the patriarchy to the one that's moved beyond it. I'm not really sure that stands up to scrutiny for a couple of reasons. 
First of all, I don't think that engaging with misogyny is less feminist than imagining that it doesn't exist, though both are obviously fine if that's what you're going for. Secondly, I don't think Rings has moved beyond the patriarchy. While female characters are fairly central in most of the storylines, none of them is really in a position of authority. Galadriel is constantly having her authority undermined, both by the male elves under her command and by the king, and arguably even by Elrond. Bronwyn faces similar challenges in her own community, being ignored by the male community leaders. Dwarf society is clearly patriarchal, with a male head of state, just as the elves have. The Harfoots seem to be a bit less hierarchical, but it still seems as if most of the community leaders are male. There's a difference between having forceful female characters and depicting them actually having societal power. So I'm not sure I buy that dichotomy being imposed on the two shows. I think if anything, House of the Dragon is just more explicit about its themes and ideology, whereas Rings is so far a bit flimsier in that regard. I want to move on to another couple of things I've been seeing on the cesspool that is Twitter. First of all, a lot of stuff about Matt Smith's physical appearance. Stuff like how he's ugly, he looks bad in the wig, he has no eyebrows, he looks like a product of incest. It kind of feels like this is beneath my contempt and I shouldn't even dignify it with a response, but I do just want to say that I love Matt Smith and I think he's terrific in this. Also, Jack Gleason had to deal with similar stuff, but I think it was worse in his case since he was so young and right at the beginning of his career, as well as because Joffrey was an even more hated character, at least so far. It's just revolting behaviour from fans and I hate the fact that anyone in my Twitter circle would be spreading it onto my timeline. I do think some people have come around after the end of episode 3 showcase Smith and Damon in a way that they found acceptably badass, but it's kind of pathetic that a character has to single-handedly kill a bunch of people before fans will give the actor the respect he deserves. Another thing I want to mention is a tweet I saw comparing real-life monarch King Charles II of Spain with Daenerys Targaryen, as portrayed by Amelia Clarke. The point of the tweet seems to be that she is more inbred than he is, but she's hot, whereas he is disabled slash ugly, so in real life she'd probably be disabled slash ugly too. I mean, in real life would she be able to ride dragons and withstand being set on fire? I usually hate that kind of argument, and I'm not saying the logic of fantasy shouldn't be internally consistent, but in this case I just don't understand what point is being made. It really seems like an excuse to make fun of a real-life disabled man. And by the way, one of the replies to this tweet, which was liked by two of the people I follow, which is how I saw it, and that's disappointing, listed one of Charlie's disabilities as short. As someone who's five foot three, which is the same height as Prince, fuck you very much, that's neither a disability nor the result of inbreeding. Not that I want to stigmatise being either disabled or the product of incest for what it's worth, but I just think this whole thing is gross. What are you getting at with this? Are you worried that the Game of Thrones franchise is going to turn kids on to incest and you're trying to warn them? Because this discourse really feels like a hair's breadth away from eugenics to me, and even if you think that's a stretch, it's definitely using a real-life disabled man to make a fatuous point about a fictional character, which to me is gross enough by itself. Let's not forget that everybody's favourite spouter of soundbites Tyrion Lannister was also, horror of horrors, short. So that's what I have to say about that. Okay, moving on. As for what I think about Hot D more generally, I'm really enjoying it. 
I have seen criticisms that it would be stronger with multiple plot threads rather than purely focusing on the Targaryens, but I have to say that so far the main plot has been enough to keep my interest. I think the characters are well drawn, and the battle scene in the third episode was a huge improvement on some of the ones we saw in Game of Thrones, both leaner and better choreographed and edited. There have also been some scenes that had real emotional heft, like the one with Nova Fuelis, Mose's Lena Valerion being groomed as the next queen, just as Emily Carey's Alicent is by her own father. Both girls' obvious anxiety and lack of agency is really affecting, as is another scene between Alicent and Millie Alcock's Princess Rhaenyra as they talk about the loss of their mothers. All three of these young actors are really impressive, whereas I think that in Game of Thrones, the younger cast was a bit of a mixed bag. I feel like House of the Dragon is generally more interested in the interiority of its characters than Game of Thrones tended to be, and at the moment at least that's paying off. I also think that the show is using the dragons really well. There's an early shot which is a clever mirror to a shot from the finale of Game of Thrones, and which implies that dragons are going to be treated as much more commonplace here. But actually, I think the show creates a real sense of awe in scenes like the one where Rhaenyra arrives at Dragonstone to speak with her uncle. The dragons are used sparingly, but when they do show up, it makes an impression. I just discovered that the setting and main conflict, like much of Martin's work, was inspired by a real-life period of British history known as the Anarchy. King Henry I's only legitimate son drowned in 1120, after which Henry chose his daughter Matilda as his successor, but she was challenged by her cousin Stephen. Matilda was known as Empress Matilda, and her son, who would eventually go on to become king, was known as Henry Fitz Empress. How cool is that? This period is also the backdrop for the Cadvile novels, which surely deserve their own sprawling high-budget franchise. One last point I want to make before I move on to Rings of Power is that I think Lady Missaria, played by Sonoya Mitsuno, feels like a departure from the way sex workers have been portrayed in the franchise up to this point. We've seen compelling sex worker characters such as Roz and Shay, but they haven't always been treated with a lot of dignity. Shay was very much seen from Tyrion's perspective, and his eventual murder of her didn't seem to have any effect on the popularity of his character among the fanbase. Roz was dispatched in even grislier fashion. Both of these women seemed mostly to exist to serve the storylines of characters who were deemed more important, like Sansa and Tyrion. While this may end up being the case with Missaria, I think it's interesting that in her introductory scene, we seem to be seeing her point of view more than Daemon's. We haven't seen a huge amount of her since then, but in one key scene we got a lot of backstory and a sense of her motivations in a way that feels promising. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with these characters and what the older set of actors who are due to show up mid-season will bring to the table. The show's already been renewed for a second season, but one of the showrunners, Miguel Sapochnik, has stepped down and will be replaced with Alan Taylor. Ryan Condal is still attached, who was an EP and writer for the underrated sci-fi show Colony, and Taylor is a veteran not only of Game of Thrones, but also a ton of great shows like Mad Men and The Sopranos, whereas Sapochnik was responsible for The Long Night and several other season 8 episodes, as well as one of the absolute worst fringe episodes alone in the world, so I'm not too worried to be honest, but we'll see what happens. Okay, let's talk about Rings of Power. I have to say that my watch of the first episode didn't bode well, I was really having to force myself to finish it. I think that's largely because I was really struggling to engage with Galadriel's storyline. It's a shame because I'm a big fan of Morvid Clark, I haven't seen St Maud because it looked too scary, but I loved her in His Dark Materials and A Personal History of David Copperfield. I have to confess that I'm not really an elf person, I'm willing to be corrected on this, but I feel like being into elves is kind of straight culture. As I said, 
I've had two friends who were really into the elves in Lord of the Rings, and they were both straight women. Maybe that sample size is too small to really conclude anything. But it doesn't stop at Tolkien for me. I'm really into Bioware games, and Dragon Age Origins is one of my favourites. But while most of the fandom, not to mention the creators, seem to think that elves are the canon protagonists, I really prefer them in small doses. My first and favourite playthrough of Origins was as a dwarf commoner, and I'm still really attached to that character and storyline. Similarly, I'm much more interested in the dwarves in the Lord of the Rings franchise. Unsurprisingly then, I did find myself starting to be won over when we got to the second episode and we got to see Khazad Doom in its prime. I think it's really gorgeously realised and far more impressive than all of the shiny elf stuff that kind of looks like a screensaver to me. I also felt like Galadriel's storyline got a bit more interesting in this episode. I was looking forward to seeing Nazanin Bonyardi in this show, having been a big fan of Counterpart, but so far I'm finding her storyline kind of middling. We've seen human elf romances before, and I don't know if there's much about this one that makes it feel fresh. I also feel, and this is a wider problem throughout the show, that the characterisation isn't great. A lot of the time it feels like the characters stand around making declamatory statements. There isn't much subtext or nuance in a lot of the dialogue, and there isn't much humour either. It's always been the dwarves and the hobbits who provided that levity throughout the franchise, and since there aren't any in the Bronwyn or Galadriel storylines, they can drag a bit for me. Okay, so let's talk hobbits, or rather, proto-hobbits, the Harfoots. Obviously, there's been some controversy among the Morlock population about the fact that there's racial diversity in this show, and I'm not even going to bother engaging with that because it's so stupid. I did engage with some stuff that I also found stupid when I was talking about House of the Dragon, but only because it was coming from people who profess to be on the left, and I feel like they should know better. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that racism is bad, I feel like we're on the same page there. I have seen a lot of engagement with these points on social media, and I do understand the impulse to clap back, especially after the racism and harassment that some of the Star Wars cast faced in the last few years. I just don't know if it's really reaching the people who need to hear it, so it can start to feel like a bit of a circle jerk after a while. Not to mention that people like Elon Musk do this shit deliberately to try and cling to their notoriety, and you're just playing into their hands by circulating it, so mm, let's not dwell on that. I did see one tweet that said that the true Tolkien fans are the ones who are complaining that the Dwarra Dams don't have beards. I don't sell myself as a true Tolkien fan, since I've learned most of the lore through participating in the fandom rather than actually reading the books, but I did totally think this. Honestly, it kind of bothered me. I mean, I've made peace with it, but it would have been cooler if they'd had beards. Never mind. Anyway, the Harfoots are by far the best thing about the show for me so far. And I love that they're Irish, even though the convincingness of their accents is variable. I think Markella Kavanagh and Megan Richards are both really promising, and their dynamic is sort of reminiscent of the one between Frodo and Sam, but it's also its own thing. Of course, the crux of this storyline is the mysterious Meteor Man, aka The Stranger. Who is he? There are a lot of fan theories floating around. While I was actually watching, my guess was that he was Tom Bombadil, and that is one of the theories, but on reflection I think that there are two others which are a lot more likely. The first is that he's either Gandalf, so that would definitely involve some jiggery pokery with the timeline, or one of the other Istar. Or is it Ishtar? My Quenya's rusty. If he is Gandalf, his bond with Nori would foreshadow the relationship he later has with hobbits, his fall would foreshadow his death and rebirth at the hands of the Balrog, and Daniel Wayman does have enough of the look of a young Ian McKellen for it to work. 
The second most plausible theory to me is that he's Sauron himself. This would fit in with what looked like the Eye of Sauron at the crash site when he landed, plus the fact that Nori says that the fire around him is cold. Cold fire is always a bad sign in this franchise, from the torches that gave off no heat in episode 1, to the ring being quite cool to the touch when Gandalf takes it out of the fire in Fellowship. Then again, there's another theory about Sauron, and that's that he's Halbrand, the man on the raft with Galadriel. I'm not convinced that there's a huge amount of evidence for this so far, but it's entirely possible, and that would free up our friend Meteor Man to be either a wizard or Tom Bombadil, which is still my favourite theory, even though it's not the most likely one. So, while I definitely prefer House of the Dragon so far, Rings of Power is growing on me. My hope is that it lightens up a little bit, that we get plenty more of the dwarves and the Harfoots, and that the dialogue improves. And again, as I said, the dialogue so far is in keeping with the franchise, I just could do it a bit more wit. I'll keep watching both, at least for now. Alright, so there you have it. Uh, I hope that wasn't too controversial. But again, if you want to reach out to me on uh, panicintheuk at gmail.com, then you can. You can also find me on Letterboxd at Panic in the UK and, you know, just generally around. I'm going to put the transcript of the scripted part of this episode up on my blog, which is, guess, it's panicky in the UK. WordPress.com. I'm panicky in the UK on most places. Please don't dox me. Alright, so after this, I'm going to transition into a little clip from the Mohs scale, that's the M-O-H-S scale, which as I said is my other podcast with my friend, and um, in this clip we're talking about the Matrix a little bit. The podcast is about science fiction and fantasy, and basically the way that different scientific concepts are used in pop culture and fiction, and the actual science behind it. But it's not about fact-checking or myth-busting or anything like that, it's just about looking at the way that ideas are being used, and I think it's really fun and really good, so just have a listen, huh? Okay, thank you. Bye! To go from the sublime <laughs> to the equally sublime, but slightly more uh, contemporary, mm. uh, we were talking about The Matrix, yes. right? Because, speaking of uh, meal replacements, in The Matrix they basically eat this kind of gloopy... It's like a kind of gruel, I think, yeah, basically. they said it was like runny eggs, which sounds awful. Yeah. And then they talk about tasty wheat, uh, yeah. how maybe it's like tasty wheat, but uh, they don't actually know because they don't know whether tasty wheat that, really tastes that was like really tasty wheat. There was one bit that really stood out to me, though, kind of off the back of what you were just saying about the forbidden fruit, is that in in mm. that scene where they're eating this disgusting-looking runny egg-type um, nutritionally mm. complete meal, is that Mouse says something along the lines of to deny our own impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human and he's talking about something else mm. but to discuss it in that scene where they're eating a very <laughs> um, for the body not for the soul type food is just an yeah. interesting juxtaposition I suppose I thought yeah definitely I suppose at the core of the matrix is do you give up a world which is fake but which 
gives you everything that you mm. need, you know, that is tempting in so many mm. ways for reality, when reality basically involves sacrifice and hardship and mm. you know having to eat this weird gruel stuff and wearing these really scratchy looking gray clothes all the time you know mm. uh, and i think that brings us to cypher yeah. right so food in the matrix is really interesting you have this gruely tasty wheat stuff there are a couple of references to food other than with cypher uh, and the gruel uh, one of which is when Neo goes back into the Matrix, he's driving past this noodle place and he says, oh, I used to go there all the time, really good noodles. Uh, but you don't ever see him actually eating the noodles. Mm. And the other thing is when the Oracle gives him a cookie. And it seems to be a significant cookie, but you never really see him eating it. You just see him kind of holding it. So there is food and we do see Neo interacting with food, but we never see him really savouring it or really like, seeming to a, a cookies really are into like it a, I, I automatically think of cookies as being comfort food and parental mm. so the oracle giving it yeah infantilizing yeah. i think yeah. in a way for sure i missed that bit yeah definitely and i think that there is a kind of that yeah that kind of dynamic between the mm. oracle and neo definitely feels kind of interestingly parental yeah. But the, the person that we do see really, really savouring food and its steak uh, is Cypher. And this is when he, spoilers by the way, for a movie that came out 22 years ago, guys. Uh, if you haven't seen The Matrix by now, like seriously, like I, I know that we're all like we've all got stuff to do, but come on, you've had I mean, 20 years. It, it, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i mean if you're listening to this podcast like you've had time you know what i mean like, hey <laughs> don't do it. No, no, no i'm just no i'm just saying okay. i'm just saying uh all right um but yeah so cypher is really enjoying this steak and he's talking about how even though he knows that it isn't real mm. and that it's actually and i mean that this is maybe something that we'll come back to later, actually, uh, later on in the series. But in The Matrix, basically what people are being fed in reality mm. is uh, the kind of um, recycled bodies of other I, people. I haven't picked that up on the first time I watched it, but with thinking about this... Yeah, I had definitely yeah. forgotten when I went back to look at it again. I was like, oh, I had forgotten yeah. that detail. How interesting uh yeah i mean super disturbing yeah. actually so even though we know that that's what's going into his body mm. he's saying he doesn't care you know he knows it's fake he knows it's other people basically yeah. but it's so delicious that he doesn't care he wants to get back into that fake world because that's the thing that gives him stake and he's, you know he doesn't want to make this pleasure, sacrifice albeit, yeah created in our own minds over over the truth isn't he yes absolutely and i think that's really interesting because there again you are having food associated with temptation mm. and sin and betrayal as you have often in the biblical context mm. but i think that it's clear that the rest of the crew are making a really big sacrifice by sitting there eating this gruel yeah. you know they're not yeah. enjoying it they're not having a good time this is not where they want to be but they're making that sacrifice because they really believe in the cause mm. so it's it's not yeah i don't know it's interesting and complicated and ambivalent in a way that i do think kind of harks back to that that kind of biblical stuff mm. that we were talking about